Ephesians chapter 2, a very familiar passage for many of us. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Hear now the word, the living God. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the living God, and we say thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray together. And now, O living Lord, we present ourselves to be seated as the voice of Christ, our shepherd, speaks to us in the pages of Holy Scripture. We pray once more this day that you would incline our ears to hear, our minds to engage, and our hearts to desire the things of Christ and him crucified. Help us to be strengthened we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It likely doesn't surprise you, but I'll remind us nonetheless, we live in a day where identity is a common word. People of various walks of life are seeking, lost outside of Christ, to find their identity in a whole host of things. In fact, in our day, we've seen a proliferation of people finding new ways to identify themselves. Not only are people finding their identity in their works, in their work, now we have a whole host of individuals who are seeking to find their identity in who it is that they desire to live with, to find their identity in a gender or biological sex that is not Theirs. Increasingly, the world asks the question, who am I? And gives a full-throated answer, this is who I am. For believers, we understand that the question of identity is actually not a new question. The pages of Holy Scripture define for us the identity of believers. Really, the Bible knows of two main identities in Christ And not in Christ. 
Here in Ephesians chapter 2, we have those familiar words. I want us to zero in on verses 5 through 8 tonight. But before we do that, we can't pass over verses 1 through 3. We've said many times that Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 is the resume of every human being. It is the CV, if you will, of every person ever born that we are dead in trespasses and sins, that we walked in these sins, that we lived according to Satan's devices, and we conducted ourselves in the lusts, the desires, the passions of the flesh, and were by nature children of wrath. Not only is there a condition of being spiritually dead described in these verses, but the text describes the existence of these previous non-believers as one in which they were continually walking in the cause of their death. Notice that they were continually walking in the cause of their death, specifically trespasses and sins. Charles Hodge, a theologian, says this, quote, they walked in sin They were daily conversant with it and devoted to it. They were surrounded by it and clothed with it. End quote. But at least to me, some of the most stunning words of all of Scripture are the first two English words of Ephesians 2.4. But God. But God. Stunning words because of what has come just before it. Notice the description again. Walking in sin. Loving sin. Breathing the air of the prince of the power of the air. Walking. Conducting ourselves in the lusts of the flesh. We weren't just wrestling with a few imperfections. We were swimming in rebellion against God. But God. But God who is rich in mercy. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, quote, Here you see the greatness of his grace in that he loved us even when we were dead in sins. So you see the resume of the unbeliever. You see your resume, your life. But verse 4, But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. And you need to understand that God did not begin to love the Christian once the Christian repented of his or her sins. God did not begin to love the Christian once he or she had proved himself in the faith for a while. Let me give them a little grace. Let's see how it goes and then maybe I'll set my love upon them. God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses. Boys and girls, you know the word trespasses. Sins. Sins. Maybe you've been in a forest or in a neighborhood and someone will post a sign. Do not trespass. Do not break this Entrance. Well, we have all done that. We have committed trespasses against God and we're spiritually dead in them. But God, who is not just merciful, but rich in mercy. It's almost as if Paul is struggling, humanly speaking, with words. God is rich in mercy. 
Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Make no mistake, before we talk about identity, make no mistake, God did not set his love upon you once you proved yourself Christian. It is because of the love of God that you even have the grace of Christ and his perfect record covering your life. But the text then says, doesn't it? Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We just reflected as a church a couple of weeks ago. Not only are we raised with Christ, but we're ascended with Christ. Our brother Blake just preached a sermon. I commend it to you. It's online about how even the ascension of Christ is a glorious part of the work of Christ on our behalf. Made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If you study the book of Ephesians, you will remember that one of the constant themes of Ephesians is union with Christ. Some 30 times almost, Paul either says with Christ or in Christ. Every single paragraph almost is bathed in this idea that where Christ has gone, you have gone. If you are united to Christ by faith, his death is your death. His resurrection is your resurrection. His ascension is your ascension, that you are united to Christ. Here we read of one such occurrence, made alive together with Christ. Five words in English, but one word in the Greek language. And it's the main verb of all these ten verses. You are made alive together with Christ. That's the main verb. That's the main focus of these ten verses. You, Christian, are made alive together with Christ. That's your identity. That's who you are. That is what is most true about you. You are made Alive together with Christ. Our total identity is being in Christ. In fact, the Bible calls Christians in Christ more than it uses the word Christian. Not wrong to use the word Christian. It's a wonderful word. Early Christians were called Christians. But if we're looking at how the Bible overwhelmingly defines us. How it identifies us. It says we're in Christ. In verses 5 and 6, Paul uses three distinct Greek verbs to express what God has done for believers. Specifically, he has made us alive together with Christ. Secondly, he has raised us up with him. And thirdly, he's seated us with him. Each of these Greek verbs begin with a prefix in the original language meaning with. And the action of each of these verbs, the person, the recipient, is connected with Christ. The reality is brought about because of who he is and what he has done. We are attached to him. Where he has gone, we go. In Paul's opening chapter to the Ephesians, he describes God's own initiative in bringing people to himself. And here in chapter 2, again, there is an objective reality to salvation of each believer. God and God alone accomplishes the work. Now, in the middle of these three verbs that begin with the word with, 
Paul also writes what seems to be kind of an aside. He writes in verse 5, By grace you have been saved. One biblical commentator writes this, quote, The parenthetical mention of grace is in place. Nothing else than grace could give life to the dead, but grace could indeed do even that. End quote. Three phrases about our union with Christ, and in the middle of it, the words, by grace you have been saved. We saw that this morning in a different text, but here, the tense of the word saved is in a tense which signifies something has happened in the past. It's a, hist- it's a historical reality, and it continues with effects to the very present. You have been saved, continues to be the case. So what are we to make then of this identity? That the truest thing about us is that we are made alive together with Christ. I want us to see four things tonight as we consider our identity being in Christ. This text invites us to consider not just our lostness and the glories of the gospel, But it also invites us to consider, to reflect upon, to meditate upon our identity in Christ. So let's do that. The first thing that we see is that our spiritual life is in him. Verses five and six, we've been made alive. We've been raised spiritually now and one day physically. Have you ever thought about this reality? That the resurrection of Christ has raised you once already. It's raised you to life spiritually. There is a resurrection to come. The reality is your tomb will not be occupied forever. But even now there is spiritual life because of Christ. But is this the way that you see yourself? Do you understand that you have spiritual life in Christ and that this defines you? Uh, Perhaps a host of questions to consider Is there a human success that you think defines you more than being made alive together with Christ? Is there a human work that you think defines you more than having been made alive together with Christ? Or perhaps, to the converse, is there a physical ailment or challenge that you are experiencing that you think defines you? How often we do that. We think about identity. We look at the world around us and we say, the world is really messed up. People are finding their identity in a whole host of twisted, wicked things. But sometimes in sinful moments, don't we do that? We wrestle regularly with remembering who we are. And so sometimes we gravitate towards my identity is that I am, and then you fill in the blank. I am the sick person. I am the healthy person. I am the weak person. I'm the depressed person. I'm the good father. I'm the bad mother. And on and on it goes. It may not sound to our ears as twisted as the evil that the world brings about. I'm a boy when really I'm actually a girl. But isn't there a subtle shift away from who we actually are? We are made alive together with Christ. Full stop. We may temporarily be experiencing a physical illness, depression. We may be wrestling with how to be a good parent, but that's not our identity. 
The scripture says our spiritual life, our identity is in Christ. Secondly, we need to see tonight that we are recipients of God's love. Again, I remind you of what verse 4 says. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. If you are in Christ, it is because in God's immense, eternal and infinite love, he saved you. If you are in Christ, then part of your identity is that you are a recipient of God's love. Reflect for just a moment on this glorious truth. What loves of this world do you think that you need? What loves of this world do you crave? What loves of this world do you want to be identified with? Have you ever given thought to the reality that because of what this text says about who you are, Connected with it is the idea that God has set his love upon you and that that is a part of your identity. You are loved by God. Similarly, to meditate further, is there a lack of love that you think defines you? How many individuals will say I was the unloved child and their entire lifelong Suffering with the hurts of bad parenting on behalf of their parents. Their identity is, I was the unloved child. Maybe as a Christian you love Christ, but you regularly wrestle with why your spouse doesn't love you the way that you want him or her to love you. And this becomes a part of how you view yourself. I am the unloved one. Or maybe, once again, in the reverse direction, your identity is, who wouldn't love me? Look at me. All the while forgetting that the love that defines you is the love of God that was set upon you even when you were dead in trespasses and sins. You see, our spiritual life is in Him and we are recipients of God's love. These things are truer realities about us than our experiences and than our feelings. These are truer realities about us than what we experience in our daily lives. Our world is wrestling with identity. Oftentimes, we as Christians wrestle with our identity. And in the pages of Scripture, God actually tells us who we are. So much so that many of the pages of the New Testament are exhortations by Paul or Peter or James or John. Be who you are. That would be a very unwise thing to tell an unbelieving world. Hey, go be who you are. But it's a very wise thing to tell Christians. Be who you are. Because who they are is what? Saved in Christ, loved by God. Of course, telling a Christian to be who they are doesn't mean keep on sinning. It means don't forget who you are. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. This is our identity. Our spiritual life is in him and we are recipients of God's love. But thirdly, as we think about identity, this text actually tells us something else in verse 7. It reminds us that we have God's kindness. Look at verse 7. 
that in the ages to come, he might show thee, and then here's Paul, almost humanly speaking, wrestling with helping people to understand, writing unto the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the immensity of God's kindness, that he might show what the exceeding riches. (laughs) You're either rich or poor. But in God's economy, if you're in Christ, you are exceedingly rich in Christ. The exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Oh, how we would raise a generation of Christians that come to understand that the gospel rightly inculcated in our lives helps us to understand how kind God is to us. We have God's kindness. Do you consider day by day, every day when you get up, every night when you lie down, that part of who you are is a recipient of God's kindness? His kindness. Perhaps a way to reflect on this is to ask you this question. What cruelty or trauma of this world are you tempted to think is your identity? Oh, there certainly are cruelties. And trauma is actually a real thing, although much overused in our day. It is a real thing. But a Christian who's been and experienced great cruelty, a Christian who's been through very traumatic things, is not defined by those experiences, but rather by God's kindness. Martin Luther once wrote this, Quote, what shall be said of us who have seen so many good hours yet are not willing to endure evil? He means suffering for a single hour. We see, therefore, how many blessings God showers upon us and how few evils barely touch us. Wish I had time to just walk you through what Luther is talking about here in context. He's saying when you experience hurts and sufferings in this life, you ought to consider to yourself how many sufferings and evils you haven't actually experienced. And it's all because the very hands of God, as it were, have kept those evils and sufferings from coming your way. God is so kind to us, and he's kind to us even when we hurt. When I am suffering, when I am experiencing cruelty from others, when I'm experiencing trauma, even in those moments, God is kind Because behind the one suffering is a full weight of things that God has lovingly kept from coming my way. And that in Christ, all sufferings, even the worst in this life, are but a moment. They are, as it were, a light, momentary affliction. Is your identity formed in your mind? With the reality that you are one to whom God has been extremely kind. Our spiritual life is in him. We're recipients of his love. And we have God's kindness. Brothers and sisters, there is a subtle move in our day, even in Christian circles, for us to find our identity in other things. And it has to stop. (laughs) It has to stop. And the reason it has to stop is not because we may just go woke like the rest of the world. It has to stop because we are stunting our experience of God's love and kindness to us by finding our identity in things which are much less glorious 
than the living Christ. We have his kindness. We have his love. Our life is literally bound up in him. I have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live. It is Christ who lives in me. This life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, and here it is, who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is truer than our hurts. This is truer than our successes. This is truer than our trauma. For they are all temporary. But what is eternal is that we are in Christ. That God has set his love on us. And that we have for all eternity the kindness of God in Christ showered upon us. But there's a a fourth descriptor of our identity in this passage. Continuing in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. These two verses are wonderful reminders for any of you in the room tonight who are wrestling, curious, wondering, what does it mean to be a Christian? Let me be clear, the scripture is abundantly clear that we're not saved by our efforts. We're not saved by our works. We don't forgive our own sins. We don't do enough good works to make up for the bad deeds and then earn the favor of God. No, Christ was crucified as a sacrifice for sins. And by faith, trust in Christ, we receive him and all that he is, all of his merits, his perfect atoning death on the cross and his perfect works before God. And we are clothed in him. Again, we are in him by faith. Faith attaches us to Christ. So we have no boast but Christ. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But then notice verse 10. For we are his workmanship. The underlying Greek word there is the Greek word poema. It's almost like you could say, quite literally, we are God's story. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. A fourth reality of our identity is that we have a wonderful purpose. We have a wonderful purpose. Because we've been saved by Christ, God has defined our purpose. How many times have you talked to a teenager or a young college student or mid-twenties individual making their way in the world, trying to find out what their purpose is in this grand thing of seven billion people in the universe? What's my purpose? And it becomes a part of their identity, the quest to know what am I going to do? Who am I going to be? But yet again, the scripture tells the believer who he or she is. You're God's workmanship, and he has created you for good works, which he has prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. So often we ask ourselves as believers, what should I do for God? Reality from behind the curtain, if you will, from God's point of view, our good works have been prepared beforehand. That we may walk in them. We have a wonderful purpose. We don't need to seek to 
be something great, as it were, for the kingdom. God has crafted us as his workmanship. Created us in Christ Jesus for good works. The mother who lives out her days, training her children, putting food on the table, changing diapers, washing bottles, can do that for the glory of God in a way that is just as honorable as the person who hands out 10,000 tracts. Oh yes, we should evangelize. Oh yes, we want God to raise up pastors and ministers and missionaries and preachers' wives. Theologians, we certainly need that. We understand that he raises those things up as gifts for his church. But how often have we considered that every Christian is his workmanship? Not just the missionaries, not just the ministers. Every Christian is his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, most works of which the world will never see. So what are you striving for? I want to carve out my identity for the king. He's carved it out for you. He's carved it out for you. You are spiritually alive in him. That's a greater word over you than any experience you have, any success or failure. You're a recipient of his love. How many of your own sins are because you are seeking lesser loves? You have his kindness. How often are we tempted to think that the unkindnesses of this world are what define us rather than God's kindness to us? And you have a wonderful purpose. We are so tempted, aren't we? To find the works. And God has crafted in Christ Jesus a workmanship. The work of these believers before salvation was one of trespasses and sins in which they once walked. Verses 1 and 2. After Paul states that believers are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus, he says and states what the new state of being in this salvation is to look like. For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In verse 10 then, Paul contrasts these post-conversion believers with his description of them in verses 1 and 2. Have you ever considered that? Notice the walk of verses 1 and 2. And notice the walk of verse 10. They once walked in trespasses and sins, but now they walk in good works, which God has already prepared. Whereas these Ephesians were, quote, dead men walking, now they are living men walking. And even the good works which believers walk in are prepared beforehand by God. Salvation by grace through faith. And the resulting life of believers who have been made alive together with Christ. That's our identity. When the world increasingly wrestles with identity, without giving them a pass at their sinful ways, we can kind of understand. They're grasping for an identity. But we have one. We have one. And oh, how so often we wrestle to live in light of that identity. Brothers and sisters, it would do us well 
to meditate and memorize such passages like Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. That among other things, we might be reminded because we are so forgetful. We regularly have spiritual amnesia. We are so forgetful of who we actually are. When the sufferings of this world, when the trials and illnesses and difficulties of this world come our way, how tempting it is, or perhaps how subtle the enemy's temptations are to whisper in our ears, he's forgotten about you. Did God really say what you were? Yes, Satan. Yes, self. He has. My life is in him. He is my life. I am clothed in him. He has said he loves me. But what right do you have to say that God loves you? I don't. But he does. He's told me that he loves me. And I believe him. And he said to me that he's going to be eternally kind to me. So bring about all the cruelness of this world, enemy. For it is but a passing moment. It does not define me. What defines me is the kindness of God who has made me for a purpose. He's told me what that purpose is. As the world wrestles increasingly with identity, let us wrestle less. Let's pray. Living God, help us. For we are so prone to forget who you've declared us to be in Christ. Help us to remember these truths by your Holy Spirit. Burn them deep into our hearts. Convict our minds of the reality of who we are. Help us, we pray, out of this, to feel the security of being in Christ, to know and to love him, to rest in him, And thus be free to walk in the good works which you've ordained for us until you enter us into heaven's door. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. You'll find a song of response there in your bulletin.